Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him, and He will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, will help thee, yea, will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this morning, it's our custom to take a few minutes of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to uh, confess your sins in the privacy of your priesthood to God the Father. In silent prayer, you simply need to admit or identify uh, your sins to God, and the instant that you do so, you are forgiven, cleansed from all unrighteousness, restored to fellowship, recover the filling of the Holy Spirit so that you can advance in your spiritual life and focus, concentrate on the teaching of the Word this morning. So let's uh, begin with a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we do thank you for the privilege, the opportunity, the freedom to gather together to fellowship around the teaching of your word. We thank you for the fact that you have revealed yourself to us through these 66 books of the canon of Scripture, and that in these 66 books we have the truth by which we can live our lives, the truth by which we can understand and evaluate the circumstances that surround us, the truth that helps us to understand reality. It is your word that uh, expresses all that you have for us. Your word defines reality. You have created things the way they are. And it is for us to align our thinking to reality as it has been revealed to us. Father, we thank you for the, our salvation, that it is based on grace and not on works. We thank you that all that we have in the Christian life is based on grace and not works. Now, Father, as we study your word this morning, we pray that you would challenge us with the things that we study Help us to focus, to see how these things relate to our understanding of reality and our understanding of our own spiritual life. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. My body still doesn't know what time zone it's in. Last week, last Sunday morning, I just returned from uh, Moscow the day before, and that was an eight-time zone time difference. Thursday morning, I flew out to California, which is three time zones in the other direction, so that was a total of 12 hours difference from Moscow, halfway around the world. I went out there because on Friday night, Chafer Theological Seminary graduated their second uh, class, or actually they had their second commencement ceremony. They had graduated several about two or three years ago, and this year we had our first Master of Theology student graduate along with four uh, Master of Arts in uh, Biblical Studies. So this is a, uh, m- another milestone in the development of Chafer Seminary, and I would imagine that uh, on their website at www.chafer.edu, they will have uh, pictures from the graduation on Friday night. So this is a, an important thing as the seminary continues to go forward and continues to grow. And uh, then I flew back yesterday, and my body has no clue what time zone it's in anymore. Open your Bibles with me this morning to 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 22 through 28, although I do not think we'll make it through the whole part of this paragraph because it is loaded with doctrinal content and development. The subject of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 
is the resurrection of Jesus Christ. In the first 11 verses, Paul establishes the foundation for the belief in the resurrection of Christ. First of all, it was laid down in the Scripture. In verses 3 and 4, he stated, For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scripture, and that He was buried and that He rose again the third day according to the Scripture. That's the first witness. Don't make the mistake, as we get into this passage that some have, of thinking that the ultimate the ultimate foundation for knowing that Christ died, uh, that Christ rose from the dead, is based on uh, the empirical data of the witnesses. There are a number of witnesses, but the first witness is Scripture, because Scripture always tells us how to interpret experience. Scripture is the grid through which we understand that which we see, feel, touch, t- taste, touch and think. So he starts with the witness of the Scripture. Then he goes to the empirical data that was the result of the witness of the apostles, that Christ appeared first to Cephas, that's the Aramaic name of Peter, verse 5, then to the other ten disciples, but not in that order. We went through the various appearances of Christ after the resurrection. First he appeared to uh, Peter and John, and then he appeared to uh, ten of the disciples, remember Judas is dead by that time. Then he appeared to the eleven with Doubting Thomas present. Then he was seen by over 500 brethren at one time. 500 believers gathered together and he taught at that point. And then there were other appearances. For example, the appearance to um, the two on the road to Emmaus and his appearance to James and then to Uh, all of the apostles, and last of all, to the Apostle Paul. The point being that the resurrection was not just some mysterious, mystical, subjective uh, appearance uh, in the minds or thinking or optimistic wishfulness on the part of the disciples. It is a historical event. It happened in space-time history, and it cannot be doubted. The problem in Corinth was that they were interpreting experience not from Scripture, but from their past cultural Greek philosophical religious framework which rejected the concept of resurrection because it rejected the importance of the physical body and in fact the physical world was less significant for them. So there's no need to resurrect the body. In fact, in their thinking, in their human viewpoint, pagan thought, the Greeks believed that the body was really a prison for the soul and the ultimate goal was to be released from the body and to have ultimate freedom when you returned to heaven, so they rejected this concept of physical bodily resurrection. So Paul begins to argue on the basis of logic in verse 12. This is what we covered last Sunday morning from verses 12 to 19. Paul lays a tight, integrated, logical argument to demonstrate that Christ must be physically raised from the dead. In verse 12, he says, Now, if Christ is preached, and he continues to use first-class conditions here in the Greek and English, we only have one way to express a condition, and that is with with the word if. But we all know that the word if can have various shades of meaning, various nuances. It can mean if, and we're assuming it to be true. It can mean if, and we assume it's not true. It can mean if, and we have no idea. Perhaps it will, perhaps it won't. And we can say, if I wish it were. Well, we can mean all those things in English, but we have to express it one way. In Greek syntax, you can distinguish each of those meanings. And here, Paul uses a first-class condition, if, and it's a debater's if, first-class condition, if, and it's in this case, it's if and it's true, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, and that is the preaching of the apostles. And so this is, uh, this is not the, the debater's first class comes in in verse 13. This is a regular first class. If and it's true that Christ is preached, the conclusion then is, how is it that some of you claim that resurrection is impossible? How is it that some among you say there is no resurrection of the dead? If this is what all of the apostles preach, if this is the universal belief of the church based upon the Scriptures, that's Old Testament prophecy, based upon what the apostles have seen as they were commissioned by the risen Lord, then why is it that some of you 
uh, believers, and they were believers in the Corinthian church, how was it that some of them claimed that there was no resurrection of the dead? Then in verse 13, he begins to pick their argument apart. He says, but if, first-class condition, as a debater's technique, if, and it's assumed that there is no resurrection of the dead, that's your, that's your conclusion. If there is no resurrection of the dead, then the logical conclusion is um, that then Christ is not risen. This is a form of the uh, modus ponens argument. If A, then B. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, the conclusion is Christ is not risen. That would have to be your position. And then the next, then he takes that conclusion as the premise for the next uh, statement. And if third class condition, I mean first class condition, if, and we will assume for the sake of argument that that conclusion is correct. If Christ is not risen, then our preaching is vain, or empty, and your faith is also empty. And his argument is that if there's no resurrection of the dead, then that means that Christ couldn't have been raised from the dead. If Christ isn't raised from the dead, there's no foundation to Christianity, and so everything that we're doing is just a waste of time. It's emptiness. There's no value to it whatsoever. It's just uh, uh, wasted time, wasted exercise. So he goes on from there to emphasize that, again, in verses 16 and 17, that if Christ is not risen, furthermore, you're still in your sins because if he isn't risen, then he didn't die on the, he couldn't have died on the cross for your sins. The resurrection is a, a sign of God's approval and validation of what Christ did on the cross. So if Christ is not risen, then his work on the cross really didn't, did not do anything. And therefore you are still in your sins. They have not been paid for and you will still be, uh, you will still perish and be under the penalty of eternal condemnation. Then in verse 20, having taken apart their argument logically in verses 12 through 19, looking at it from their assumption that resurrection is not possible, he begins in verse 15 by saying, But now, this is a strong contrast to what has gone before. Now, the point of verses 22 through 28 is to express a vital doctrinal principle, and that is that the reality of the resurrection is related to the Redeemer who must bring resolution to the angelic conflict. Let me say that again. The reality of the resurrection is related to the Redeemer who must bring resolution to to the angelic conflict. That's the point in these verses 22 to 28. Now, this isn't a simple point, but the reason he's making this is to go beyond the fact that some may say, well, the, the resurrection was nice, but the physical bodily resurrection really doesn't accomplish much. What was really accomplished was Christ's substitutionary atonement on the cross. But the resurrection is vital. It is a part of the whole the entire victorious strategy of the Lord Jesus Christ at the cross. In fact, you can't separate his substitutionary atonement when he paid the penalty for sin from the resurrection or even from the ascension. All three elements, the crucifixion, the resurrection, and the ascension all work together in bringing about Christ's strategic victory at the first advent. And so Paul is going to take the reality of the resurrection here and go beyond the simple fact that Christ rose from the dead to show how it fits within the overall framework of the resolution of the angelic conflict in human history. And this is where he begins in uh, verse 20. He says, but now Christ has been raised from the dead. Notice the contrast. He's been arguing from the negative, the assumption of their premise that there is no resurrection of the dead, and now he draws the contrast. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. And this is the topical sentence for the next three verses. This summarizes it. The but now is the, the Greek phrase, nuni de. N-U-N-I plus the uh, adversative de, 
which is used to introduce a real situation in contrast to the unreal conditional clauses or sentences that have preceded this. In other words, Paul is saying that what we have talked about before was simply your false assumption, but now we're going to talk about the reality. There is a punch here. He has argued from their false premise, and now he says, but now Christ is risen from the dead. This is a dramatic, logical conclusion to the argument that he has presented in the previous nine verses. It is a logical tour de force which smashes the argument of those who claim that there was no resurrection. In effect, what Paul is doing is he's taking the argument from the empiricist and he's turning it on the ear. See, the empiricist would say, well, I've never seen resurrection. I've never seen anybody raised from the dead. I've never seen anybody uh, come out of a tomb. And he is turning that on, the, on, on its ear by using empiricism. He has already stated that there is a clear, uh, that there is a clear witnesses to the resurrection. In fact, there's over 500 uh, who have been witnesses to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. So he uses the unbeliever's own assumption that empiricism leads to truth, and he uses that to uh, destroy their argument while remaining committed to the priority of Scripture and that Scripture is the basis for evaluating uh, the data of experience. So he says, but now, then Christ has been raised. And here he uses the perfect passive indicative of the Greek verb egyro. That should be spelled E-G-E-I-R-O, egyro. And egyro means simply to raise up or to stand up. Now, as a perfect tense, the perfect tense emphasizes the present results of a past action. So in this sense, this is what's called an intensive perfect, emphasizing that which is going on now, the present results of a completed past action. The completed past action was when Christ came out from the tomb. And the results of that go on. He is still alive. He has a resurrection body, and now he is seated in his humanity at the right hand of God the Father in heaven. The passive voice indicates that the subject receives the action of the verb. So Christ is the subject. He receives the action of being raised. God the Father is the one who ultimately raised him from the dead, although there are passages that emphasize Christ as being instrumental in his resurrection. Ultimately, it is God the Father who is the one who uh, uh, calls him forth from the dead. Now, there are two different words that are used in this section for Christ's resurrection or for resurrection as a whole. The first word is the word that we've just used, egyro, which is used most often in this section of Christ's resurrection. That is the event that took place on the day of first, first fruits, on the Feast of First Fruits, uh, four to, three days after Passover. A gyro refers to that historical event when Jesus came out of the tomb. The other word that is used for resurrection is the Greek word anastasis, which is used most often of resurrection as a principle and therefore of believer's resurrection. So these are the two different words. A gyro is the word that is used, for example, in verse 12, if Christ, if Christ is preached that he has been raised, that's a gyro in the perfect tense again. How do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? That's anastasis. That second phrase is talking about the principle of resurrection. In verse 13, but if there is no resurrection of the dead, that's the principle again, there Paul uses anastasis, then Christ is not risen, and that's egyro. So uh, anastasis is used in 12b, 13a, and then again when we get down to verse 21, for since by man came death, by man also came the resurrection of the dead. See, that's the principle of resurrection again, and that's the word anastasis. And then it's used one more time in verse 42a. So also is there resurrection of the dead. So anastasis in, in Paul's usage refers to 
the principle that gyro in this passage refers to the event of Christ's resurrection. Now, anastasis is used by other authors in the Gospels to refer to Christ's resurrection. I'm just talking about how Paul uses terminology. You know, that's a really important aspect of Bible study is that different people, different authors of Scripture use different vocabulary, and they may use the same vocabulary in slightly different ways. That's how the Holy Spirit works through inspiration. Is It's not a mechanical inspiration or dictation, but he utilizes each individual person, their style, their personality, their backgrounds, and all of that comes through in the writing of Scripture. So when you are in the process of studying the, the, the words of Scripture and doing word studies, one of the things you have to pay attention to is how different authors use different terminologies. And one of the most uh, apparent, which is often ignored, is the way John uses the phrase in him, referring to Christ, and Paul uses the phrase in Christ. For Paul, the phrase in Christ refers to positional truth. That is, that at the instant of our salvation, every believer is identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection, and we are placed in Christ. But in Paul, I mean in John, in the Gospel of John, in him is a relational term, and it describes fellowship. So you have to distinguish how different authors use uh, these words, and so that means that you have to spend a lot of time in the original languages. So in verse 20, Paul says, But now, in contrast to your assumption that Christ has not been raised or that there is no resurrection of the dead, Christ has been raised, or you could even translate that as a present tense to bring out the, the, the stress of the perfect tense there in the Greek. Christ is risen. He is risen. It is the present results of a past action. He is risen from the dead. And the phrase from the dead is the Greek preposition ek plus the genitive, which indicates source. He has risen out from the source of the dead, and it is a plural genitive indicating the dead ones. He has been resurrected. He is risen from among the dead ones, and that was a phrase that referenced where the dead ones are, the graveyard. He has been resurrected from the graveyard. This, again, is evidence that Jesus Christ didn't just pass out on on, on the cross, that he wasn't just carried off somewhere and revived, but that he was placed in a tomb um, in an area where there were other graves, and he was, from, from all of the evidence, clearly dead physically. And three days later, he rose from the dead. So Paul says, but now Christ is risen from among the dead ones. He has come forth from the dead. And then he says, he is the first fruits of those who are asleep. Now, this is the basic message of the apostles. It's clear from Acts 3.15. Peter says that the Jews put to death the prince of life, the one whom God raised from the dead, a fact to which we are witnesses. This is the apostolic message that went with, with salvation. Acts 26.23, Paul states it this way, that the Christ was to suffer and that by reason of his resurrection from the dead, he would be the first to proclaim light both to the Jewish people and to the Gentiles. He is the first fruits. This is the Greek phrase, or the Greek word, ap-arche. Ap-arche, it's a feminine singular nominative noun, meaning to offer the first of something, the uh, first thing to come forth, and became a technical term for the firstlings or first fruits. It's used in the uh, Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, to refer to the uh, offering of the first fruits, which would come forth every spring uh, as the indication of a further harvest. Under the Mosaic Law, there was an initial gathering of the barley harvest in the early part of the spring, and the sheaves of barley would be reaped from a common field. There was a specific field where this would take place, and the barley would be reaped and taken uh, into the temple. There it would be threshed with soft canes in order to keep from bruising it, and it was parched over a fire in a perforated pan so that the grain would be gently roasted. 
then they would uh, blow away the chaff from the from the from the grain, grind it, and then they would uh, bring that flour into the temple and offer it to God on the first day after the Sabbath following the Passover. So Passover would occur, and that was when Christ was crucified. Then there's a Sabbath, which is Saturday. Then the first day after that Sabbath, which was the Sunday after the Passover, that was the day that the uh, priest would offer the uh, flour for the Feast of first fruits. That was a picture in the Old Testament in the typology or the, the shadow imagery of the Jewish Old Testament feast. The Passover was a picture of the crucifixion, but first fruits depicted the resurrection of Christ. And so Christ is raised from the dead exactly on the feast day, which was uh, designed to depict that event. So first fruits occurred on that first Sunday after Passover and pictures the resurrection and Christ's resurrection fulfills that typology. Then seven weeks later, seven days in a week, seven times seven is 49 days. Okay, then you get to the next Sunday, it's 50 days. 50 days is Pentecost, Pente meaning five, 50. Pentecost was 50 days later. So seven weeks later, a new grain offering was to be presented according to Leviticus 23, 15 to 17, and Deuteronomy 26, 1 to 11. So the principle is that first fruits implies that there is a subsequent harvest, that it's not the only event, it's not a unique event, but first fruits is the beginning, it's the initial offering and indicates the promise and the hope of more, uh, of a further harvest. Thus, the first fruits is a down payment of something to come. So, in the same way, Christ's resurrection is a down payment and a guarantee of what will follow for all believers. The fact that is that he had to be raised from the dead. The Christ's physical bodily resurrection had to take place as a preparation for our resurrection. The implication is that there would be no resurrection of anyone else unless there were this first resurrection. So his resurrection is a pioneer event. He is the one who must accomplish that victory over death before there can be subsequent victories over physical death. So Paul says, Christ is risen from the dead ones, the firstfruits of those who are asleep. And if you were a Jew reading this, you would immediately understand that the implication there is that this is a guarantee of future resurrections. And he uses the phrase, those who are asleep. It is the verb koimao, and it's used with an article which indicates it's a, it's a relative uh, uh, it's a participle used as a relative clause, and it means to sleep. This is a euphemism for the sleep of the believer's body in the grave. It's not talking about soul sleep. Paul is clear that when we die physically, we're absent from the body. We're face to face with the Lord. The instant you die physically, your soul leaves your body, and it is in the presence of the Lord, and it is in the presence of, a lo- of the Lord in a... In an interim body, there, it's not just some sort of disembodied spirit that's hovering there as sort of a soft glow in the presence of God, but it, it, you actually have a, an interim body. Now, how do we know that? Well, we know that from a number of different lines of evidence. First of all, when Moses and Elijah appeared to the Lord and with the Lord on the Mount of Transfiguration, they appeared in a body. It wasn't the physical body they had when they were on earth because, uh, well, Moses' body was buried. We know that there was a physical body that uh, Satan fought with Michael over his body, according to Jude, verse 9. Elijah was taken to heaven in a chariot. 
so there was no physical body left on the earth. But the implication there is that there is, a, there is an interim body, at least for Moses. A second example we can take from the Old Testament is when Samuel appeared to Psalm uh, appeared to Saul when the witch of Endor called him forth from the grave. Now that's the only, excuse me, that's the only time that you have a legitimate situation where someone who is dead is called forth from the grave, and that is because God overrode the situation in order to warn Saul one last time of his impending death, his sin unto death, if he continued to disobey God and continued to be in rebellion which, of course, he did, and the next day he was defeated in battle and he committed suicide at the end of the battle. But God allowed Samuel to come forth from the grave, and the witch of Endor, who was practicing necromancy, had never had anything like this happen. She was a fraud, like uh, anyone is a fraud who is calling forth people from the dead. They're not calling forth people from the dead, these people who get on television and claim to speak to the dead or channel the departing spirits. That's demonism. Those are not the, the, the real individuals that are speaking through them. There have been numerous uh, people who've demonstrated the uh, fraudulent activities of these necromancers. One is a man by the name of, he goes by the name of the Amazing Randy, and there's a whole group of, of uh, magicians who have offered thousands and thousands of dollars of rewards for anyone who can demonstrate the validity of their calling somebody forth from the grave, and nobody has ever uh, been able to validate that. No one has ever taken, taken that reward. That was something that was a major preoccupation for Houdini. And every year, I think, on the anniversary of his death, there are those who try to call up the spirit of Houdini. And when his widow was still alive, he had arranged with her a certain signal, a secret code, so that she would know for sure that that was his spirit that came forth from the grave. And that was never validated. So there's no such thing as being able to call anyone forth from the grave. There's one unique situation in all of history when God allowed Samuel to return to give a warning to Saul there in 1 Samuel, and that shows that Samuel had some sort of body, an interim body. Another example to show that there is some sort of uh, interim body comes from Luke. In Luke chapter uh, 16, there is the uh, story about the rich man and Lazarus in Luke 16:19 and following, where Lazarus is a beggar who dies, and he goes to paradise, to Abraham's bosom. The rich man also died, but he's not a believer, and so he goes to torments. And when he is in torments, he looks across this great gulf that separated torments from paradise, and he looks over and he sees Abraham, and he says, Abraham, let Elijah, I mean, let, let Lazarus come and put his finger in the water and touch it to my tongue. These are very physical terms, so that indicates there's some sort of interim body between our physical death and the rapture when we receive our resurrection body. So this uh, concept of sleep is a euphemism that's only used for believers. It's never used of unbelievers. It's used of believers who go through the sin unto death in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, that this, when the Corinthians are, are reprimanded for their abuses at the Lord's table. Paul says, for this reason, many among you are weak and sickly and many sleep. And that is a term for physical, um, physical death and the death of the body. And then in 1 Thessalonians uh, chapter 4, Paul talks about the rapture. And he says, for if we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so God will bring with him those who sleep in Jesus. And that is talking about those whose bodies are physically dead, and it's used as a euphemism for those believers who are dead. Their souls are absent from the physical body face-to-face with the Lord. And then we're told that uh, when the Lord returns in verse 15, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will by no means precede those who are asleep. 
For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of an archangel, and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain shall be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and thus we shall always be with the Lord. And that describes the rapture of the church, which occurs at the end of this present church age, when Jesus Christ returns in the air for the church, and the dead in Christ rise first. That's when they get their resurrection body. Then those who are alive at that time will be caught up, and they will be instantly transformed as they uh, go through the heavens to meet the Lord in the air. That event is also described here in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 in the latter part of the chapter. It takes place in a twinkling of an eye. Now, Paul presents his rationale or his reasons for this in the next verse. Verse 21, he says, For since by a man came death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. So he is going to draw a parallel between the arrival of death and the victory over death. He begins with a logical inference using the uh, Greek particle gar, which always begins an explanation. So he stated a principle in verse 12. I'm mean, excuse me, he stated a principle in verse 20 that Christ is risen from the dead and become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now he's going to explain what he means, and that's indicated by the gar. The sense is the Greek word ep, epide, e p e i d e. Ep ada, which is the marker of a cause or a reason and can be translated for sense or for because it was through a man that death came. That's a corrected translation. The Greek is the preposition dia plus the genitive of anthropos, A-N-T-H-R-O-P-O-S. The O-U ending there on the screen is the genitival ending. The dia with the genitive marks instrumentality or the circumstance whereby something is accomplished or affected. It is the idea of by something or via something. So we should translate through the agency of a human being. So 1 Corinthians 15.21 begins, For because it was through the agency of a human being that death came. Now, what kind of death are we speaking of here? Are we talking about spiritual death or physical death? Now, what do I mean by spiritual death? In Genesis 2.17, when God created Adam and Eve and placed them in the garden, or actually before he had created Eve, he addressed Adam. And he told Adam that from all of the fruit in the garden, he could eat. Many of the trees he could eat, but... There was one tree from which he could not eat. The tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the middle of the garden was prohibited. And God said, in the day that you eat from it, you will certainly die. And the Hebrew construction there is one of absolute certainty. And it should be translated, the day that you eat from this tree, instantly, without a doubt, you will die. Now, when Adam ate from the fruit of the tree, he did not die Physically, He did not die physically for 930 years. But something did happen when he ate from that fruit. He died spiritually. That is the penalty for sin. And we have to distinguish between the penalty for sin and the consequences of the penalty for sin. Physical death is a consequence of the penalty for sin. The judicial penalty was separation from God. That's what death is. It's separation. And instantly they were separated from God so that when God came to walk in the garden with them later that day, they ran and hid. That was a sign that they were spiritually dead. They could not have a relationship with God. They didn't understand uh, God, and they could no longer have fellowship with God. They were spiritually dead. But a consequence of that was going to be physical death, along with many other things, that are outlined in the uh, what we call the curse, 
or the fall of Adam in Genesis 3.14 down through the end of that uh, chapter 3. And at the last thing that God states to Adam as a consequence of their spiritual death is from dust you came to dust you will return. That is the first mention of physical death in the Genesis 3 episode. So what are we talking about when we get into 1 Corinthians 15? Is this physical death or spiritual death? Obviously, it is a true statement that it is through a man that spiritual death came. But is that what this is? Is this spiritual death? No, it's not. This is talking about physical death. The reason we know it has to be talking about physical death is the subject matter. What is the subject of 1 Corinthians 15? Spiritual resurrection? No. Physical bodily resurrection. The subject is physical death, therefore, and, and, and physical resurrection. Therefore, the concept of death in this passage is, can't be reduced to spiritual death. Otherwise, you'd be comparing uh, apples to oranges. We have to keep our categories aligned. If you're talking about physical, physical resurrection, you must also be talking about physical death. So, Paul says, for because it was through a man, it was through the agency of a man, that physical death came. So it was as a result of Adam's sin in the garden, and one of the consequences is physical death, along with all manner of physical suffering and many other things which we have studied in our Genesis series on Wednesday night. So just as through a man came physical death, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. You see, there's our comparison. Just as it was through the first Adam, this is the terminology that's used in Romans 5, the first Adam came death, by the second Adam came resurrection from the dead. This is the Greek word anastasis plus the genitive of necron without the definite article. So it is a, an anarthrous noun indicating the principle of resurrection from the dead. So the emphasis that Paul gives in verse 21 is that since a man brought physical death into the human race, it is also necessary for a man, a human being, not a God, but a human being. Now, this emphasizes the humanity of Christ once again and why the humanity of Christ had to be in hypostatic union with the deity of Christ because a man had to conquer death. A man had to pay the penalty for sin in substitution for man's sin, and a man also had to be resurrected from the dead and to conquer uh, physical death. So it, it was necessary for the second person of the Trinity, to become a true human being, something we have studied extensively in our study on Jesus Christ. Then he advances the argument. Paul advances the argument in verse 22. For, again, this is an explanation, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. And here we have an introduction of a conclusion and comparison. The gar translates the word, or is the uh, Greek translated for, indicating an explanation. And the uh, word as in English is the Greek hosper, which indicates a comparison. So he is going, again, continuing the comparison between Adam and Christ. And he states, in Adam, all die. That is, in plus the dative of Adam, uh, and using the definite article indicating a specific individual. He, it could be understood for in, in mankind as a general statement, but with the definite article here, he is emphasizing the individual Adam. In Adam, all die. Adam is the head of the race. We call this federal headship. He is the one who represented the entire human race in his decision in the garden, so that Adam's sin was your sin, our sin. Adam's fall was your fall and our fall. And he represented us. He is our head. So all of us are in Adam. We are all his physical progeny. We are all genetically related to Adam. 
and in his decision to eat the fruit, uh, we all suffer spiritual death and we all die physically. In contrast, those in Christ will be made alive. Now, how do you get in Christ? It's by faith alone in Christ alone, by simply trusting what Jesus Christ did on the cross for our sins. We're told that between 12 noon and 3 p.m., the skies darkened, and during that time, God the Father judged Jesus Christ for the sins of the world. This is something that's missing from that uh, the movie The Passion. See, there's a lot of emphasis in the Passion on the physical suffering of Christ because within Roman Catholic theology, it is the physical suffering of Jesus that is efficacious. See, they miss the whole point that it is not physical suffering that is the penalty for sin. That's a consequence. It is spiritual death and that is the penalty for sin. And it is during that period from 12 noon to 3 p.m. that Jesus pays the penalty for sin. And, and in the movie, they just barely have a few thunderclouds in the background and the time frame passes very quickly. Yet that's when Jesus really suffered. It wasn't... Uh, the time period when he's beaten, it wasn't all of the abuse that he received from the Roman soldiers that was efficacious for our salvation. That was just a part of the physical dimension of what he went through in crucifixion. But it, all of that was nothing, all of that suffering, the physical suffering, the physical torment was nothing compared to the spiritual suffering that he endured between 12 noon and 3 p.m. Then he dismissed his spirit. He said, it is finished. The penalty for sin was paid for before he died physically. And then he dismissed his spirit into uh, the care of God. So Christ paid the penalty for our sins on the cross. And when we trust him as our Savior, then that is uh, applied to us and we are Regenerate, And part of what happens at salvation is that we are identified with Christ in his death, burial, and resurrection according to Romans chapter 6, verse 3. It's called the baptism by means of the Holy Spirit. And we are placed in Christ. Uh, 1 Corinthians 5, 21 says, Therefore, if any man be in Christ, he is a new creature. Old things are passed away. Behold, all things are new. At the instant of salvation, we are in Christ. So in Christ, we will all be made alive. Now notice that is a future tense verb. In Christ, we are alive spiritually already. So once again, the subject here is not spiritual death or spiritual life. The subject is physical death and physical life. In Christ, all will be made alive physically at the rapture. In Adam, all die. But in Christ, all will be made alive. Uh, Zoa poeo, we will be made alive. It is a future uh, passive indicative. The future tense indicates that it is at a future time, and that occurs at the rapture of the church for believers during the church age. It is passive, indicating the subject, that is, every believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, receives the action of being made alive. We do not make ourselves alive but it is God who will call us forth from the grave at the rapture, or if we're still alive, we'll receive our resurrection body at the time of the rapture. Romans 5.19 states this same principle, for as through the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners. Even so, through the obedience of the one, that is Christ's obedience to go to the cross and die as a substitute for our sins, the many will be made righteous. At the instant of your faith alone in Christ alone, God the Father imputes to you the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, and at that instant He declares you to be righteous, not because of what you've done, not because of your good deeds, not because of your attendance in church or going through ritual or any other human activity, but simply because you have trusted in Christ as your Savior. You have relied exclusively upon Him for your salvation. 1 Corinthians 15.23 then goes on to explain that there are different stages in the resurrection, but each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, 
and after that those who are Christ's at his coming. And the word for order here is the word uh, tagma, which indicates a division, an order. It's used in military references, uh, indicating a division in an army, for example, a battalion. So the imagery here is of a battalion marching in review before the commander, and a battalion is made up of various different uh, companies. And so each company passes in review. The first company, A Company, is the Lord Jesus Christ, and he is the first fruits, according to Romans 1.4, 1 Thessalonians 1.10, and 1 Corinthians 15.20. Then B Company is the church. We pass in review and get our resurrection bodies at the rapture of the church, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through 18, and 1 Corinthians 15. 51 to 57. Then C Company, there's a third group in this first resurrection. See, the Bible talks about two resurrections, a first resurrection, second resurrection. First resurrection has various uh, stages. The third stage of the first re- uh, resurrection, or C Company, is all the Old Testament saints and the tribulation martyrs. Uh, this is based on Daniel 12:13. Isaiah 26, 19 and 20, Revelation 20, verse 4, and Matthew 24, 31. Old Testament saints do not receive their resurrection bodies until the end of the tribulation, and that is the same time that tribulation martyrs receive their resurrection body. D Company relates to the two servants of the Lord who are killed halfway through the tribulation, and they are resurrected three and a half days later, for all the world to see. So they receive their resurrection bodies at the time of their resurrection halfway through the tribulation. And then E Company refers to two different segments. All of these are millennial saints. Those who are alive after the tribulation uh, receive their resurrection bodies at the end of the millennium. And it's possible that those who die, if any believer were to die in the during the millennium, that... Uh, they would possibly receive their resurrection body uh, instantly. It's, it's not specifically stated when that occurs. John 5, 28 and 29 uh, reference is the resurrection in a general sense. Jesus says, Do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did the good deeds, to a resurrection of life. The good deed is trusting in Jesus Christ as Savior. Those who committed the evil deeds, that is rejection of Christ, to a resurrection of judgment. So this is simply a summary statement. He is not giving specifics or distinguishing the various resurrections in John 5:28 to 29. Daniel 20, verse 12, describes the final resurrection. And I saw the dead, this is the second resurrection, and I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life, and the dead were judged from the things which were written in the books according to their deeds, not according to their sins. This describes the great white throne judgment, which is the final judgment for all unbelievers, and they're evaluated according to their deeds. Not their works, now why, not their sins. Why is that? Because their sins were paid for at the cross. So the sins for everybody are paid for on the cross, but that's not enough to get you saved. You have to have perfect righteousness in order to be saved. The only way to receive perfect righteousness is to trust in Christ when we are instantly imputed or given or granted the perfect righteousness of Christ. And that's the basis for our justification. So unbelievers are going to show up at the great white throne judgment, and all they're going to have is their own personal good deeds or good works for for righteousness. God's going to stack all that up and measure it, say, well, it still doesn't measure up to the perfect righteousness of Christ, which I demand. God is perfectly righteous, and he cannot have fellowship or a relationship with anyone who is less than perfectly righteous. And so at the great white throne judgment, unbelievers are judged not according to their sins, which were paid for, but according to their deeds. They don't have perfect righteousness, and therefore they will not enter into 
into heaven. And the result is that they will be uh, cast into the lake of fire, verse 14. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Now, who throws him into the lake of fire? Jesus throws him into the lake of fire. So you don't get this modern uh, fear that we as evangelicals don't really want to talk about the lake of fire or talk about condemnation or punishment and that Jesus is really this soft, loving, gentle Jesus who isn't going to throw anybody into the lake of fire. That's not what Scripture says. Scripture says that at the end of the tribulation, he's going to throw the Antichrist, the false prophet, into the lake of fire. And then at the great white throne judgment, he is going to throw all the unbelievers into the lake of fire. This is harsh, but this is reality. There is a judgment for failure to trust in Christ as Savior. So back to 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. In verse, verses 21 and 22, we have the rationale that Christ, in Christ, all will be made alive. And then in verse 23, but each one in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So what's the point? Christ had to be raised physically from the dead in order to set the precedent and the pattern for what would come next. But it doesn't stop with simple resurrection. It doesn't stop with simply the fact that Christ had to be raised from the dead physically so that we could be raised from the dead physically. There is something broader going on here in terms of the role that Jesus Christ is playing in the angelic conflict and how all of this fits into the angelic conflict. And this is what Paul explains in the next five verses. In verse 24, he says, Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father, when he puts an end to all rule and all authority and all power. And these terms, rule, rule and authority and power, are terms that refer to the different rankings of fallen angels. So verse 24 shifts from the resurrection of believers to the end. Suddenly we're talking about God's resolution of human history at the end when uh, Jesus Christ will deliver the kingdom to God. This occurs at the after the great white throne judgment. He delivers the kingdom to God and fa- the Father and puts an end to all of satanic attempts to rule and destroys the destroys Satan and all of the demons. What does that have to do with resurrection? See, this opens up a whole new dimension to what is accomplished through the resurrection in setting the stage for the ultimate victory over Satan's rebellion in the angelic conflict, which comes at the conclusion of history. And this is what Paul begins to develop in the next few verses, which we'll have to come back to to understand next time. It pulls together a lot of different concepts, a lot of different doctrines, which uh, we just don't have time to fully develop uh, this morning. So we'll come back and look at how the resurrection of Christ is the foundation for the resurrection of believers, but it doesn't stop there. That becomes the foundation for the resolution of the angelic conflict in Jesus Christ's victory in time, which then uh, sets up the stage for all of eternity. With our heads bowed, and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for this opportunity to study your word this morning. We thank you for its clarity, for its precision, for the way it explains precisely to us what took place on the cross in terms of our salvation and Jesus Christ's victory over physical death and how this works itself out throughout all of history. All of these things tie together. All of these doctrines are interrelated. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who's unsure of their salvation or uncertain of their eternal life, that they would take this opportunity to make that both sure and certain. Right where you sit, you have the opportunity to determine your eternal destiny. It's simply a matter of your choice. Are you going to trust and rely on Jesus Christ alone for your salvation, or are you going to rely on something else? 
The Scripture makes it clear it's a simple issue. It's faith alone in Christ alone. When you mix your faith with something else and try to rely on faith in Christ plus good works or plus church involvement or plus ritual, it negates the faith. It is faith alone. So right where you sit, you can determine your eternal destiny simply by trusting in Jesus Christ. You don't have to pray a prayer. You don't have to raise your hand, walk an aisle, anything else. Simply trust. Christ. I mean, God the Father is omniscient. He knows all the knowable. He knows what you are trusting in. The instant you decide to trust in Christ, you are regenerate. You receive the imputation of Christ's righteousness, and you receive a salvation that can never be lost. Father, we thank you for the things that we've studied. May we be encouraged and challenged by the tremendous victory accomplished by Jesus Christ on the cross, which lays the foundation not only for our salvation, but our spiritual life and our future rule and reign with him. We pray this now in his name. Amen.